morning, everybody. Thanks for having us today and welcoming us here. It's a privilege to be with you guys. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And yeah, so as you're going there, yeah, let me just express thanks. It's, uh, it's a great opportunity for me to be able to just come and be encouraged with you guys. I, I know a lot of the guys who have come here. Um, I hope I, I live up to the expectations of, of good people that have preceded me. But it's one thing I love about the Presbyterian Church is that these are people I know, and now I get to stand among uh, one of the congregations where I know um, brothers and friends that have come and preached, and now I get to worship with you and be mutually encouraged, and hopefully that's how we uh, leave here today. Um, so yeah, John 1, we started in verse 19, reading through verse 37. Uh, if, you're, if you're able, would you please stand as we read here through God's Word? Hear now the Word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jeru- Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. This is the reading of God's Word. May he bless it to us. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we come and we've heard from various sections in your Word, we ask that you would illuminate the Scriptures to us through your Holy Spirit, that we might see your Son, Jesus Christ, with greater clarity, that we might understand in a deeper way, what He has done for us and accomplished on our behalf. That we might offer You praise, Father, and call You, not just God, not just judge, not just one above us, but but our, our Father in Heaven. And that we are welcome as Your children. So we come to You eager to learn. Fill us now, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Well, there's a uh, meme that I like going around on the internet these days. It talks about how a lot of modern emails are written. And it starts out by saying, I'm using an exclamation point in my first sentence so that you know I'm friendly and excited. But now I'm using a period so you know that I'm not crazy. The second sentence coolly relates. Here's another sentence with a period. 
as a buffer, proving my normalness. And finally, it concludes with, thanks so much, exclamation point. Of course, the traditional use of an exclamation point is just to, to give emphasis. You, you know, we're supposed to use it rarely, not three times in a matter of five sentences in an email. But however we use it, in the modern sense, the traditional sense, what's important about the exclamation point is it changes everything that goes before, before it. It changes how we understand what precedes it. And that's something about what our passage does today. Everything that comes before Christ is changed with His arrival. We see it in new light. We see it with greater clarity. You might also recall those awkward moments of reading in front of the class in school and sounding out words for the first time and kind of making it clear to the teacher it was probably the first time you had read the assigned reading and realizing only too late into a sentence that it was an exclamation. Try and just sneak that in there. Well, later on in life, I found out Spanish had solved this problem. My wife is from El Salvador, and I learned to speak Spanish. And they have this brilliant method of anytime there's a question or an exclamation, they insert an upside-down exclamation point or question mark. And it's, it's brilliant. I mean, it's simple. It's subtle. It lets you know what's coming. And we have something of an upside-down exclamation mark here with John the Baptist. He prepares the way for Jesus. And really, this extended summary about who John is not is what prepares us for who Jesus is. And John's exclamation with the arrival of Jesus is one of the great exclamation points in all of Scripture. It's, Behold, John the Baptist cried. Behold, John the Evangelist wrote so that future generations might hear this testimony. It's the same testimony proclaimed to us today by the Holy Spirit. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's really three points that will guide our time in the Word this morning to help us understand the significance of the Lamb. The first is the preparation for the Lamb from God. The second is the proclamation of the Lamb who takes away our sin. And the last point will be the pursuit of the Lamb by His sheep. The preparation for the Lamb, the proclamation of the Lamb, and the pursuit of the Lamb. So we begin with our upside-down exclamation point in John the Baptist who prepares the way for Jesus. Now John the Evangelist points the spotlight on John the Baptist in order to show one thing, that he is not the light. He was not the point, exclamation or otherwise. Yet John the Baptist is the center of attention through so much of our passage this morning. And really, the, the delegation's questions in verses 19 through 24 reveal the reputation that John was enjoying among the crowds. I mean, was this the Christ? Had he finally come? Might this be Elijah who prepares the way for the coming Messiah? Or maybe it's the great prophet of whom Moses foretold all the way back in the Pentateuch. But John was none of these things. He confessed in verse 20. He did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. So who was he? Well, John calls himself a voice. A voice that cries out in the wilderness, not to draw attention to himself, but to point others to Jesus. He baptized to make known the one who walked unknown among them. So even though John was not the light, he did bear witness about the light. We're told that in John 1 verse 7 in the prologue. Through his words, John introduces us to the eternal word, the same word who was with God in the beginning, who was God and is God himself, as we're told in John 1.1. The same word that became flesh and dwelt among us, 
John 1, 14. It's the one who dwelt among us is the Lamb of God. John is the spoken word that proclaims the incarnate word to us. It's John's witness about the Lamb that prepares for us to encounter this great word that's become flesh, the great exclamation point that we might otherwise miss. He prepares us to receive it. And in, in a way, John's voice is what helps us see Jesus. And he still testifies in the same way for us this morning. John helps us to see Jesus. Now before we move on to John's proclamation about the Lamb, I think there's at least three points that I find helpful and instructive in John's witness. First, he points others away from himself and to Christ. John used his voice to, and the attention he received to direct others to Christ. His voice gets our attention, but once he has it, his witness points us onward to Jesus. In so many ways, John is really like a signpost in the wilderness. He's, he's doing his ministry in the wilderness, and like in any wilderness area, it's not developed. There's, there's not a lot of signs to mark the way. But like a faithful signpost, you, you can be lost. You cannot really know exactly where you are. But when you encounter that signpost, it points you in the right direction. It doesn't matter if that signpost is small or great or simple or fancy. All it needs to do is point in the right direction. And John showed those who were with him in the wilderness how to find their way home. No one could look at John and not see Jesus. So he points away from himself into Jesus really is instructive for how our own witness should be. As much as we might share our story, that's fine. Testify to what, to what God has done in your life. But be sure, be sure to point away from yourself into Christ. Second, John's testimony exalted Jesus and not himself. Sometimes we like to bask in the attention we receive, don't we? And make no mistake, John was a great man. He received a lot of attention. He could have exalted in a way in who he was. In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus himself says to the crowds before him, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. He was commissioned by God from the womb. His birth was foretold by angels. His conception was a miracle. He was the last of a prestigious line of Old Testament prophets. He received delegations from Jerusalem in the desert. Delegations from the capital city don't travel to the desert unless you are creating quite the stir. He prepared the way for God's Messiah. And yet, John knew he was nothing compared to Christ. I am not even unworthy to untie the strap. I am not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal, he says in John 1.27. Now a slave was expected to perform this duty for his master. But John did not even consider himself worthy of the work of a slave. Such was his inferiority to Christ. And such is ours. Would others know this by your words? By your witness? By your words or actions or tweets or comments in the online world? What do our words and our actions communicate about the Christ we claim? to follow? Do we exalt Him above ourselves? And third and finally, John pointed people to the right Jesus. John pointed away from himself and exalted Christ and the right Christ. And that might sound a little weird at first. I mean, he's pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to the right Jesus, right? But John didn't point to Jesus, the great moral teacher, with a new law to obey. 
He didn't point to Jesus the life coach with a new program to follow. He didn't point to Jesus as an example to even be imitated. Not at first. He points to the Lamb who can take away your sin. In other words, John points us to the Gospel and not to the Law. The Law was given through Moses, John the Evangelist tells us back in verse 17 of chapter 1. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, the Law is good and holy, but it only can leave us condemned. But the Lamb... The Lamb can take away your sin. If Jesus is to be any help to us at all, He must come to you as the Lamb. We must come before Him as sinners, seeking to have our sin taken away by Him. Which Jesus do you point others to? Your children to? Chances are it's the one that we point ourselves to. Maybe it's the great moral teacher. Maybe it's the one who helps us live our best life. These things are not necessarily wrong, but the the Jesus we all need, the place we all need to begin, is with Jesus the Lamb. Only He can take away our sin. Well, John's great I am not in verse 20 prepares us for the great I am, the arrival of Jesus, the Lamb of God in 129. So we turn now to our second point. What do we learn from the great proclamation of the Lamb of God? What does John tell us about this Lamb who takes away the sin of the world? Well, stepping back a little bit just to get some context, really the theme of the Lamb is a thread that runs throughout Scripture. I mean, we might start in Genesis 22, and you might recall Abraham leading his son Isaac up the mountain, having been told by God to sacrifice his son, the son of promise, the son that was given to him and Sarah in their old age. Or we might think of Exodus 12, Israel under bondage in the land of Egypt, told to paint their doorposts with the blood's lamb, the, the lamb, the blood of the lamb, in order to protect them from the angel of death that was coming to visit all the firstborn in Egypt, to strike the death blow and set the people of Israel free. Or we might think of Leviticus 16. We read a, a portion of that this morning. How the, the blood of goats and bulls made atonement for the sins of the whole nation, so that they might enter into the presence of God. So as we keep pulling at this thread through Scripture, it gives way more and more. It begins to unravel, and we chase it all the way here to John 1. And that thread pulls tight here because we've reached its anchor in Jesus Christ. See, the lamb for a man in Genesis 22, or for the families in Exodus 12, or for the whole nation of Israel in Leviticus 16, is summed up here in the Lamb of God. In Jesus, we have the ultimate Son of Promise in which all the families of earth were blessed. He is the firstborn son who was not spared. Not just for earthly tabernacles, but really for the heavenly temple itself. We read that in Hebrews uh, 9. It says in verse 24, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. It's really what we see in the Lamb of God here, in Jesus Christ who arrives in John 1 is all these loose threads in Scripture are gathered up and woven into a beautiful new tapestry. He changes everything that went before Him. He's the great exclamation point, the great I Am, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Not just for any one man, or any one family, or any one nation, but for the whole world. There's at least, really here, two two reasons why I think we can look at Jesus was born the Lamb of God. 
It's probably more, but we'll have these two points to guide this this idea here. First, he was born the Lamb of God to recover our true humanity. You see, in the Lamb, we see Jesus as God the Son and the Son of Man. The imagery takes us all the way back to the creation of the world, where God made mankind in his likeness. We're told in Genesis 1.27 that in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. One might say that when God looked at our first parents, he saw himself there. But the great tragedy of the fall is that this glorious reflection became disfigured. And it's with the greatest irony with what Satan tempted our first parents with. Not, not with fruit, but with something that was already there. As we're told in Genesis 3.5, the serpent talking to Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. See, the great irony here is in grasping after what was already theirs, Adam and Eve lost what they had already been given. And perhaps most ironically of all, it was in their attempt to become like gods. In their own terms, in their own way, that they ceased to be human. And we continue in that same pride today, don't we? In so many ways, the history of religion is just one long sustained attempt for us to become like God in our own way, on our own terms. And Christianity has not been immune to this poison. The darkest stains in the church's history are precisely those moments where we've lost sight of God's way and we try to come to Him on our own terms. The more we try to become like God, the less we actually reflect Him and the more we reflect the image of Satan. But if we can't become like God, where does that leave us? If we can't make our way to Him, what can we do? Really, the only option left is for God to come to us. And that is what He does. That's what we see in the Lamb of God before us. It's God the Son come as a Son of Man. We read from Dietrich Bonhoeffer earlier. I want to quote him again. He's a German pastor who was martyred in one of Hitler's death camps in the Second World War. And he puts it this way. Christ took upon Himself this human form of ours. He became man even as we are men. In His humanity and lowliness, we recognize our own form. He has become like a man so that men should be like Him. In the Incarnation, the whole human race is given a chance to recover the dignity of the image of God. Through the fellowship and communion with the Incarnate Lord, we recover our true humanity. So this is the first thing that we see that the Lamb has come to do, to recover our humanity. So you see, the Lamb comes to us as the God we need. And He comes to us in our need, as we need Him. He becomes one of us so that we might become one with Him. He recovers our humanity. This leads us to our second point. That or sorry, our second reason why Jesus was born the Lamb. He came to rescue us from our sin. And really, the reason the story of the Lamb is worth telling and retelling is precisely because it's not a story of our ascent to God, but God's descent to us. And we've been circling this a little bit in the fact that Christ has recovered our true humanity. In order to do that, He had to rescue us from our sin. Now we're coming out of the Christmas season, and a lot of the verses we we typically hear around this time it, it helps us to understand that it's not just simply in the Lamb of God that we don't just simply see who God is, His character, 
someone willing to, to become the Lamb of God on our behalf. But He did this for us. God didn't have to do this for Himself, but He does it for us and in our need. So we read, in, in, for instance, in Isaiah 9.6, uh, this one verse in anticipation of Christmas there. But the good news that isn't that this child that's born bears the names of Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's amazing. But what makes it good news is that that child is born to us. Now every child is born to someone, to, to its parents. But only one child in the whole of human history could be said to have been born for the human race. And that is Jesus Christ. It's why the angels who sang the first Noel to shepherds in fields where they lay, in Luke 2, 10 through 11, say that they bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Why? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. See, the good news of Christmas isn't merely that God is, but that God is for us. That's the good news of the gospel. That God was willing to become a lamb, and that he became the lamb who takes away our sin. This point wasn't lost on the early church, uh, where my wife and I attend, we recite the Nicene Creed every week. And this creed is rich in its doctrine of God, about who God is. And in it we confess the triune Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But my favorite line comes when we confess our belief in the one Lord Jesus Christ who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and became man. And he was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. It says one phrase where it turns from who God is to what Christ has done for us. And I want us to take note of that last phrase, that he was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. This, com- this line comes in the middle of the creed, almost as if it comes from the very heart of God itself, and it reveals a profound truth, that the earthly form of Christ was the form that died on the cross, that the image of God is the image of Christ crucified, as we read from Dietrich Bonhoeffer earlier. But that almost sounds slanderous to say, doesn't it? The image of God is the image of Christ crucified? Really there? And all that shame on the cross? Our sin piled upon Him? It's like it shouldn't even be said, or if it must be said, that it should be said in a whisper. But God doesn't hide from that fact. Christ doesn't shrink back from this calling. In fact, it's the image He bears for all eternity in heaven. I'm going to turn now to Revelation 5 and read a longer passage from Scripture, but I just want us to sit back in here. Look for the image of the Lamb. Look for what He's accomplished and what He's come to do. And the result of it as we get this amazing glimpse into the heavenly throne room. It says here in Revelation 5, beginning in verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, 
numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and blessing and glory. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Friends, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The same Jesus who stood before John 2,000 years ago unknown among His people, having nothing to draw attention to Himself, now stands at the right hand of God as a Lamb who was slain, who was slain for the world, for those from every tribe and language and people and nation. For us, behold the Lamb of God. One might make a mockery of baby Jesus in a manger. They might ridicule, ridicule the One who got Himself crucified on a Roman cross, but in heaven the parody has become an anthem of praise. And we get to join in that song even now. Well, John prepared for the Lamb. He proclaimed this Lamb who not only recovers our humanity and rescues us from sin, so we must ask ourselves, what are we to do? And this brings us to our last and final point, the pursuit of the Lamb by His sheep. Now I know that last second point was full of theology. I'm often criticized for this. Uh, apparently I don't change much. But I, I, I did want to try and think through how do we bring this home? How do we bring this rich theology of the Lamb? Who Jesus is? What He's come to do? Why does that matter to us here, sitting beside a pool 2,000 years later, on the brink of a new year? And really the final point is that we are called to pursue the Lamb as His sheep. It's a short point. But don't mistake its brevity for levity. It really is one of the most profound questions that we can ever answer in our life. And it's this. Do you follow the Lamb? Do you follow this Lamb? Do you follow Him in the humility of His incarnation? Do you follow Him in the shame of His crucifixion? Would you leave behind every other hero, leader, cause, or commitment to be counted among His flock? Would we pursue the Lamb? Now John's disciples were faced with that choice. We read that at the end of our passage. And even their commitment to so great a prophet as John had to give way to the one he proclaimed. We read in John 1.35, The next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. <clears throat> That's what we've been proclaiming thus far. Behold the Lamb of God who has who's taken away the sin of the world. But the response is now upon us. And we can look to the two disciples who heard it, heard John say this, and they followed after Jesus. We're called to follow after Him as well. So what does that look like? <clears throat> Three short points in closing. First of all, we can worship. We can join in the song of the angels that we heard from heaven. <clears throat> the song of the ransom in heaven. And we can worship. It's simple. It's really what we're doing here this morning. But this is one of the ways that we follow after the Lamb of God. Second, we can receive the grace that is offered to you. Receive the grace that is offered to you. <clears throat> There's one response that I find difficult is this. 
Give me something to do is the cry of my heart. But we must remember that is exactly how Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. Just eat the fruit. Do this. And you will become like God. It's precisely how they fell. It can be so hard to simply receive God's goodness and grace to us. But the story of the Lamb is the story of God's descent to us, not our ascent to Him. What does it look like to receive this grace? We gather for worship. We listen to the Scripture as it's read. We sit under the preaching of the Word. We come to the table, not today, not an ordained minister, but the table is a place where we come to receive God's grace in bread and wine. <clears throat> Finally, when we disperse, we receive the Lord's blessing. We're sent out into the world with God's blessing, such as the grace and the generosity of our Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. We can worship. We can receive the grace that's offered to us by the Lamb. And finally, we are called to pursue Jesus in His shame and in His humility. <clears throat> There's very little in this image of the Lamb to inspire us, at least in its earthly form. But there's no other way to come to God than the way He's come to us. It's precisely, though, it's precisely when we come to Jesus' cradle and cling to His cross that we glimpse His glory as the Lamb of God. It's when we come to Him in His humiliation and in His shame that our eyes are opened to the Lamb who was slain in heaven. And truly, it's because Christ was willing to go and be slain on the cross as our Lamb that He can promise to cradle us in the glory of His resurrection forever. So people of God, as you sit here today, a difficult year behind you, an uncertain one in front of you, look to Jesus, your Lamb from God, who takes away your sin. Him we proclaim because He has prepared for you your salvation. We're called to pursue Him because He has also prepared a place for us in glory. Let's pray. Fathers, we are confronted here with the Lamb of God. There's so much about Your Gospel, about who You are, that does not have glory in the eyes of the world. We chase after even, even those who You send to point to Christ like John. We chase after those who are not the Christ. And unlike John, so much in the world is unwilling to tell us that they're not the Christ and are unwilling to point us toward Jesus, but want to seek their own glory. We may be guilty of of doing that at times ourselves. So help us to see the Lamb and seeing Him to come to Him. Coming to Him to worship Him. And give us the strength to pursue Him. Thankful that You have already pursued us. We ask this in your Son's name, our great Lamb, from, from you, our God. Amen. Amen.